this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. All right, so let's get started. So my name is Alex Bresch. I'm an I-6 resident at University of Michigan, currently serving as the TSRA president. I'm excited to introduce you to the rest of our panel for this webinar to discuss the challenges, concerns, and opportunities for medical students applying to cardiothoracic residency during the current COVID-19 pandemic. I want to introduce our eight panelists for this discussion, beginning with two leaders from the newly formed Thoracic Surgery Medical Student Association, who will moderate the discussion. Lena Traeger is a second-year medical student from the University of Minnesota, and Edgar Aranda-Michelle is an MD-PhD candidate from the University of Pittsburgh. They will be joined by Hunter Mahaffey, a 4 plus 3 track CT resident from the University of Virginia and current TSRA vice president, as well as Claudine Lewis, an I-6 resident from the University of Rochester and TSRA secretary. Finally, we're privileged to be joined by a diverse group of faculty leaders. Dr. Raporsian is a current president of the TSDA and program director at the University of Texas MD Anderson. Dr. Carpenter is president-elect of the TSDA and program director of the University of Texas San Antonio. Dr. Maluski is from the University of Pennsylvania and the chair of the TSDA Early Specialization Committee. And Dr. Reddy is surgery clerkship director at the University of Michigan and chair of the Surgical Clerkship Directors Committee within the Association of Surgical Educators. Please note that the chat window is disabled for this webinar, but the Q&A function is available. I'll be monitoring questions that arise throughout the webinar and they will be answered either within the Q&A window or through live discussion with the panelists. Finally, the webinar will be available on the TSRA website afterwards at tsranet.org and on the TSRA's new YouTube channel, which can be found by searching Thoracic Surgery Residents Association on YouTube. Our discussion will now be started by Lena and Edgar. Thanks so much for that introduction. Um, so to start us off, uh, the first question is for Dr. Vaporsian. How can applicants assess programs? Um, how can we determine which programs are good fits in this new virtual setting? Yeah, I don't think it's changed dramatically from non-virtual uh, situation. You really are gonna have to get down in the weeds and talk to people. That's the only way to assess a program. Um, one of the techniques that I would strongly urge people to use, rather than asking them direct questions about the program, like how many cases you do and things like that, I would ask what we use in interviewing, which is behavioral techniques. And so I'd ask them to describe what their day is like as a fellow, what their day is like as, as a resident. So they, they, you know, there's no way that you can uh, inaccurately respond in that one. You're really going to give a description of what you do. And, and, and there are no bad programs, uh, maybe there are some bad programs, but to be honest, most of the programs are good, but they specialize in different areas, right? If you come to MD Anderson to learn how to be a transplant surgeon, then you've gone to a bad program for transplant, right? That's not our strength, right? You shouldn't come here for that. So I would say that it, depending on the lens you're looking through, there are, you'll be able to find a good program. There'll be some that are stronger, but I would strongly urge you to look not only at the current trainees in the integrated program, but all integrated programs have to have a successful and accredited uh, traditional program prior to activating 
their accredited program. Frequently, those are in parallel, especially if they have not graduated an integrated training yet. They still have their traditional two or three year post general surgery uh, fellowship. And so targeting those individuals and their recent graduates is another way. Um, we just did, a, we have a paper coming out where we looked at our website uh, and most of the websites, unfortunately, at the RASC training programs are not that uh, full of all the details that you would need. We discovered some pretty significant gaps in our website when we did this. It was actually the quality improvement project for our residents. Um, and so website's not a bad place to look, but you can get a fooled because obviously it's kind of like social media. They'll put out there whatever they want people to hear. <laughs> Uh, but also, it, it may not be complete. It, one thing I would do is reach out to the coordinator or the program director and say, is it okay if I speak with some of your graduates or some of your current residents? Uh, and that would be the strongest recommendation. Obviously, you can look at things like case logs, but I'll put a grain of salt in there. You know, you can do 2,000 cases, but if you're a proline fellow the entire time just following the suture, you'll probably get a lot more education out of doing a few hundred where you're intensely involved in the case. And so just looking at case logs alone probably isn't good enough. That cover it? Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, I think we'll, we'll move on to our next question. Um, Edgar, if you want to Absolutely, yeah. So our next question is going to be for Dr. Mahaffey, and I think this is probably a pretty relevant question given the whole uh, bikini med incident that's been uh, going on in vascular surgery. And it's a two-part question. So one is sort of like, given uh, applicants that are going to be going through the cycle, how should they engage now with social media, especially given that perhaps program directors are going to have a limited or a more limited set of information to make decisions on? And also tangential to this is how should uh, applicants engage with uh, residents? Yeah, <clears throat> thank you, Edgar. I think uh, you're exactly right. A very, uh, a very timely topic. Um, and, I, and I'll start by talking a little bit about the professionalism piece. Um, I think a lot of the backlash with the with the bikini med, you know, it, it led to the, um, the article in JVS actually being redacted. Uh, but it, I think more than anything, it, it brought to light that, um, you know, social media, you, you really you, you create a persona. Um, and I think it's important for, for potential applicants, for current trainees, and even um, once you're out as a, a faculty, to really use that as an opportunity to create a, a virtual you, um, you know, and, and shape that uh, persona how you, how you would like to. Um, I think that uh, more than anything, you know, be consistent, be yourself. Um, I, I think professionalism has many, um, it, it, not necessarily in the eye of the beholder, but it has many different uh, uh, components. And I think the, the biggest thing is, is you, you just, you have to be consistent and, um, and, and share who you are. Um, I think just like when you get a email from a colleague that, um, you know, may pull at your emotional strings, or you may want to fire back a quick response, um, how sometimes it's better to sleep on it, think about it, reread that email that you wrote and then send it the next day. I think social media should should be used in the um, in the same sense. Um, you know, maybe not uh, uh, shoot out every uh, little thought that that pops into your mind, um, and uh, uh, and maybe take a uh, a judicious approach and, and think about things uh, before you send it out. Because you know, once you send it out, 
you can you can delete things and, and remove things, but um, a lot of times there's still a, a trail out there, and and um, once you send it out, it's hard to take it back. Um, and that uh, that brings me to my my next point. I want to talk a little bit about posting clinical information. You know, I think this has uh, become more and more popular, especially um, on Twitter. Uh, I know that uh, you know my feed is constantly full of interesting surgical videos or people talking about a cool case they did. Um, so I think it's important for us to remember that the uh, HIPAA protections apply to social media just the same. Um, and that for patient videos, um, you, you, you're supposed to be getting written consent um, for any surgical photos or videos, um, just as if you were publishing it in a, uh, in a peer reviewed manuscript. So um, I just think it's important to be cognizant of those, uh, of those issues. And, and uh, before you, um, just take a, a short video of some cool case you did and, and, and throw it up online. Um, there is legal precedent, uh, patients taking action against surgeons. Um, a lot of it has been in the plastic surgery literature um, and uh, in that realm. Um, but, uh, but I think it's, it's something that we should all be cognizant of. Um, and then the last part of that is the timing of, uh, of when you post these things. So, oh, you know, I just did a, a great lung transplant or I just, um, you know, took out this enormous cancer, you know, when you're talking about uh, rare operations or rare occurrences at an institution, um, you're, you know, if you post it around the time of when you're doing the operation, that basically identifies um, the patient for, for, uh, for, for better or worse. So I think that that, that also, um, you need to take that into consideration. Um, you know, I know when you first start out as an intern, oh, I just saw this awesome case today. It was great, you know, love working with my mentors. Um, just remember that, that that may be enough information to identify that, uh, that patient. Um, and then the second part of the question, how to interact with programs, um, I think this kind of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning, which is uh, just, just be yourself. Uh, you know, they call it the, the match for a reason. Um, I think it's hard to, um, to keep faith in the process, um, especially when things feel like they're kind of turned up on their head. Uh, but at the end of the day, everyone's just looking for the right fit. Everyone wants the, the resident that's going to succeed and, um, and do well at their program. And every resident or applicant, you know, is looking for a program that's going to support them and, and they're going to do, um, do well at. So with all these changes, my recommendation is just be patient. Um, there's anxiety on both sides. I can, I can guarantee from talking to medical students that are in the current application cycle, as well as talking to, um, uh, senior residents and, um, and the program directors that, you know, everybody's a little bit anxious to see how this is going to work out. So just be patient, um, be yourself and, um, and, and, and present, uh, and, and find the place that's going to be the right fit for you. That's, um, you know, that's, that's my thoughts on the, the social media um, aspect. Yeah, that's great insight. Thanks so much, Dr. Mahaffey. Um, we'll go on to the next question, which is for Dr. Carpenter. Um, could you speak about rules of engagement um, about communicating with different programs? And then on a related note, um, some questions that certain applicants have had during this time is should, should we take years off? Should applicants suddenly just decide to take a year off um, given the situation with COVID? So in terms of rules of engagement, you know, rules, that the, the one hard and fast rule is that um, all programs have to accept applicants through ERAS and all programs must participate honestly in the match. Um, 
and, and I think it's reasonable to expect that to be the case. Uh, and, and I kind of need to, to add a little bit to the question of how do you assess a program to really answer this question well. And, and the, the main um, issue is before you try to assess programs, assess yourself. Really stop and try to think, why do I want to train in thoracic surgery? What kind of thoracic surgery do I think I want to do? Am I looking down a, um, uh, an academic track where I spend my life as a surgeon scientist and heavily funded and doing a little bit of clinical work? Or do I really want to operate and take care of patients? Uh, do, I, do I want to be in a community uh, setting? Do I want to be in an academic setting? Then go looking at, at programs with what information's out there in the public, be it uh, the program's website or social media. Uh, and then don't be shy about communicating. Um, it's perfectly fair to email a program director and say, this is me, I'm real interested in your program. Um, uh, try to be a little creative. I'm getting tired of so many emails that say, what can I do to make myself stand out? Well, this was a good start, emailing me. Um, if the program director doesn't answer immediately, just recognize that uh, chances are that they're very busy and they'll, they'll get to their email. Uh, so be a little bit patient. If they never reply, then, then that's probably a sign for you. Um, it's also perfectly fair to email uh, residents that are currently in the program. Um, and also recognize that Programs are as anxious about how we're going to communicate with you as you are about how you are going to communicate with us. Uh, it's a two-way street, and, and we're looking for the right match for everybody. And, you know, no program is the perfect program for anybody or for everybody, but every program is the perfect program for somebody. And you just want to figure out what that one is, is for you. Um, uh, when it gets down to things like um, uh, accepting interviews and trying to schedule things, um, those communications are generally best managed through ERAS. Although every year it seems like uh, uh, some of the applicants don't keep up with their ERAS uh, message traffic and, and we end up emailing them directly to kind of work that out. Um, and, you know, it's perfectly fair to ask a program director, gee, you haven't invited me for an interview, um, why? That may help you to learn more about yourself and how you were presented to the program. Uh, and, and it may help you to understand more about the program. For example, in my program, we rely pretty heavily on your personal statement. And if your personal statement says that um, you're primary goal is to be uh, a 100% NIH-funded surgeon scientist uh, specializing in esophageal cancer, well, I'm going to tell you to go talk to Dr. Proportion. Uh, so, so you want to try to find a program that's offering the things you want. You therefore need to understand what it is that you want to the best of your ability at this stage in your undifferentiated medical mind. and. Um, and it's perfectly fair to communicate any way that you wish. 
as long as you stay within the realm of you must apply through ERAS, you must understand that everybody's going to participate in the match. And um, we all just want to be honest and fair. Is that helpful? Yes, that's extremely helpful. Um, before we move on to Dr. Maluski, uh, we realized, Dr. Voporsian, we didn't ask you the fit question. Um, so how can applicants find programs that are good fits and then assess whether they are good fits for certain programs? If you don't mind um, answering that, that would be wonderful. Um, sure, I think everything that Dr. Carpenter just said is spot on. The only caveat I would say is you need to think about what you want in your career before you start looking at the programs. Uh, this is the same advice I give my graduates as they're starting to look for jobs. Because this is an extremely exciting time. I mean, finally, after all this schoolwork and everything, you're gonna like start honing in on the thing you're gonna do for the rest of your life. And I'll just tell you, as you start hearing about the cases they're doing and the opportunities that exist at the various program, They'll all sound amazing, just like my graduates when they start looking for a job and they start seeing salary figures come across their desk and, and they start, oh my gosh, I'm going to have an office. Oh my gosh, I'm going to have a secretary. This is unbelievable, right? And you pretty quickly can get distracted from what you really want. And, and like Dr. Carpenter said, you're early in the career. You know, when I graduated, I wanted to kill rats and have a lab and do all that stuff. And the next thing you know, I've, I'm, I'm doing education and I have no lab. All right. So you don't know where you'll end up, but still it requires self-reflection and some thought. And if you have a spouse or a significant under, it requires discussion with that person too, because you need to understand what you two want out of your life. And, and if you don't sit down and take the time to think about it, the minute you start interviewing and talking to these programs, man, they all sound so cool. I mean, the things you're gonna to get to do and the stuff they're gonna let you have access, you're just quickly gonna forget about what is important to you because everything's gonna sound amazing. So I would say it takes a lot of self-reflection and thought on your part and you and your spouse uh, before you start diving deep into the various programs you're gonna to apply to. I have one comment on, uh, there was a question about, um, and I, uh, about taking a year off. Um, and just from a clerkship director's perspective, um, I, I don't know that we have any, nobody has a sense of what the next couple of years are going to be like. So I, I would take a year off if you were planning on that, if that's something that you want to do um, for, that you were thinking about beforehand. I don't know that I would do that this year because of COVID because we don't know what the next year is going to be like. And I mean, if a bunch of people take the year off this year, then you're just going to have a super competitive bunch next year, which is going to be even, you know, uh, more challenging in terms of competition with regards to the match. And so, um, you know, if that's something you were thinking about and, and you wanted to do that from a personal development standpoint, you know, so be it. Um, but I, I don't know that I would um, do that because of COVID issues. Uh, just my two cents. And that's, that's absolutely correct because that the main issue is going to be if you, um, if you take, if, if many people take a year off, then you're just increasing the pool of applicants the following year and uh, reducing your, your odds. That's excellent advice. Um, so we're about halfway through our scheduled questions, but we do have some questions that came up um, in the Q&A. 
that we wanted to just address um, before we move on. Um, so what are the chances of an international medical graduate who concluded cardiothoracic surgery residency in his home country um, matching into now CT surgery through the I-6 or the traditional pathway? Well, I'll, I'll address that question um, because th the statistics are there. If you, you, can, you can see it on um, um, the AAMC website where the ERAS data is. Um, the majority, th there are far fewer integrated programs in thoracic surgery than, than traditional track programs. Um, and I think somebody else is gonna talk about general surgery versus integrated and, and what to do. Um, but if you look at the st statistics, uh, every year the vast majority of applicants are fresh out of, uh, of successful applicants, matched applicants, are fresh out of a US medical school into an integrated program. Every year I, I look at those and it's, um, it's very tempting to try to take somebody that's done a whole residency from someplace else. And then remember the way the match works, really the applicant's rank list takes priority over the program's rank list. So um, I have one position and um, I look at 120 applicants and I rank maybe 20. And if three of them rank us number one, uh, then, then that's the pool that you're looking at. So just look at the, the statistics. Don't, don't give up, don't not apply. Uh, don't tr not try, but don't hang your whole hat just on that. Be sure that you're applying broadly. And I'll just chime in from a regulatory standpoint. Um, someone who has not completed an ACGME accredited general surgery program, osteopathic program in the United States, cannot finish and sit for the boards in a traditional cardiothoracic training program in the United States. Correct. They would have to do a whole general surgery residency and then the thoracic fellowship. Okay, uh, we will now move on. The next questions are for Dr. Maluski. Could you talk about how COVID is affecting medical student rotations, um, in particular in the setting of no away rotations or very limited away rotations, and then potentially also how can applicants obtain letters during this time? And what about students who might not have integrated training pathways at their home institutions? Yes, and I wanna thank you for inviting me to be a panelist. So secondary to this pandemic, um, I think that we, certain aspects and methodologies of application process, training, and even the practice of medicine may permanently change uh, in the future. But what does that mean uh, to those people who are now at ground zero for this change? What, what does that mean for medical students right now? So in the past, evaluations of applications have been based basically on uh, an in-person interaction or an external rotation and face-to-face -face interviews. But this year, the unprecedented circumstances has shifted this paradigm. And these interactions and evaluations have been shifted from an external rotation to a more detailed letter of recommendation and virtual interaction. So how can you as a medical student get exposure to CT surgery programs that fit you, uh, to mentors, to programs that you're interested in, and obtain the appropriate letters of recommendation or evaluation? 
And this year, I think what's going to be required of the applicant is that they're going to have to be very, very diligent of their career, persistent, think outside the box uh, for exposure to CT surgery mentors, and actually self-promote themselves and self-promote their, uh, their application. So as far as external rotations go, I think you hit the, the, the uh, nail on the head where most, if not all, external rotations have been canceled for this year. So how can medical students compensate for a lack of external rotations in CT surgery? And again, we have to think outside the norm because the norm doesn't exist anymore. And the norm, as we know, it may never exist again. So what are potential substitutes for way rotations? in COVID-19? Well, I'd like to direct you toward the AAMC uh, website. They have listed 20 subspecialty responses uh, to the application process this year. And they've also listed uh, possible alternatives for programs. And they all focus around three interrelated themes. And these themes include, number one, virtual interactions between the applicant and the program. Uh, the program providing online experiences, um, uh, virtual uh, educational uh, programs, and ob obviously virtual uh, application process. The importance of the mentor-mentee interaction and optimization and focus of letters of recommendation, allowing non-specialty letter of recommendations to be utilized. So this is what programs can do. So what, what can the applicant do? And the applicant obviously can't go to the external site for a personal evaluation. So the applicant has to identify ways that either he or she can be evaluated by their, the program that they're interested in, their home institution. So how can the applicant shift the uh, in-person external rotation evaluation to an effective virtual or letter of recommendation evaluation? And this, my suggestion is the same, to follow the same three themes, uh, which are all, again, interrelated. And that is to optimize a virtual interaction, uh, establish a mentor-mentee interaction at your home institution, and optimize your letters of recommendation or letters of evaluation to be more inclusive and more representative of you. So for the first uh, uh, theme, to optimize virtual interactions between you and the program that you're interested in, uh, look at the websites of the programs that you're interested in um, and see what they have to actually offer. I know that there are some uh, uh, programs who are actually offering virtual social hours. And look and see if they offer anything such as uh, virtual didactic sessions that you can join uh, HIPAA compliant rounds, uh, journal clubs or research clubs and contact them. Ask them, is there a possibility I can join your didactic session for four weeks or your journal club for four weeks? And in that way, you can interact with them. In the same way, I think that the uh, it, there's a very uh, a huge importance or this theme of the mentor and mentee interaction. And it's very important to develop a mentor-mentee interaction early in your medical school career, your, at least in your third year. And what types of mentors are optimal? Well, number one, a CT surgeon would be optimal. Uh, they can guide you to the programs that would fit you. They could help guide you to other mentors. And they could guide you to specific subspecialties in CT surgery. However, having said that, a general surgery mentor can be just as good to help you out. Uh, or a physician educator. 
And uh, you could also utilize mentors from uh, uh, surgical societies, somebody that you met at a meeting. Now, I will tell you that CT surgeons uh, are notoriously busy, and there are going to be uh, some of them who cannot be mentors to you. But there are some CT surgeons who are either early in their career or late in their career and want to give back to the specialty that do enjoy mentoring. And then uh, do an elective rotation, whether it's a sub-I or just an elective surgical rotation, CT surgery rotation in your home institution. And then try to do a project with your mentor. Now, this project doesn't have to be a science paper devoted to how you came up with the, the cure to COVID. It could be something as, as simple as a quality improvement poster in your hospital or a commentary in a journal or it could be just something that you're passionate about. For example, uh, the, the challenges of being a, an, an applicant in the era of COVID. And then finally, in the third theme, optimizing your letter of recommendation. Well, in best practices for letters of recommendation, the number one best practice is establishing a relationship between the writer and applicant. So then again, we come back to how important the interrelated theme of a mentor and a mentee is. What you want is to have your mentor or the person writing write something that's very uh, individual for you. Uh, just regurgitating a CV onto a letter of recommendation uh, doesn't do anyone any good. Uh, anyone can read your, your CV. So one of my suggestions would be to go to the AAMC website and download one of the letters of recommendation from a different subspecialty, such as plastic surgeries, uh, dermatology, ER, and see that they have uh, Likert scales on um, different uh, aspects of uh, medical students or applicants. And uh, have your, the person writing your letter of recommendation comment on those as well as what, you, as what you've done on your CV. For example, your professionalism, your interaction with a multidisciplinary team. How, how self-motivated are you? Did you come up with projects or, or a research idea? Um, how are you at teaching others or teaching uh, uh, um, uh, nurses? Uh, those are all important to put into your letter of recommendation, especially in the code year, because you're not going to be able to present yourself in person. You have to present yourself in the letter of recommendation. Um, and again, uh, as I, I mentioned, this, this mentor-mentee uh, interaction is important. And it's also important to document the amount of time that you have spent with your mentor. Again, you don't want to go up to a CT surgeon and say, listen, I saw you in the hallway. It's October 31st. Can you write me a letter of recommendation? It's due tomorrow. That's not going to do anybody any good. So you want to set up a time or a, a, an interaction or a relationship with them over a several month or a year period of time. So finally, what I would... Uh, I'd like to comment on, and I think this was your third question, what about students who don't have a CT residency program at their institution? And um, I will tell you that this really hits home and is dear to me because my general surgery residency program did not have a CT surgery program. And it, it is a challenge, but clearly it's not impossible because I'm here. <laughs> so, um, Again, what you do, what I would suggest that you do is, again, go through those three themes. Make sure that you, um, you contact programs that you're interested in. 
find out if you can virtually interact with them. And one of the most important things, especially for someone who doesn't have a CT surgery residency program in their own institution, is to find that mentor, whether that mentor is within your program or it's in a society or it's even an online mentorship through a society. That's very important because they can help direct you to the appropriate program and what you need to do to be able to accomplish this. Um, and I will give you just one example. Um, last year, uh, we had a medical student come in from a program that did not have a CT surgery residency. Uh, that person did a couple of projects with us, published several papers off those projects, and this year was accepted into an ISICS program. So it is possible. Again, I will just reiterate, you have to think outside the box and own your application and, and own your um, application process because you have to put yourself out there in this COVID-19 era because nothing, everything is going to be a challenge. You can overcome that challenge, but you have to be very proactive about it. Well, thank you very much for that response, Dr. Maluski. Um, before we move on to the next uh, scheduled questions, we have about two uh, in the Q&A session, and this is going to be uh, directed to Dr. Reddy and anyone else who might want to chime in. Um, the first one is, given sort of the state of COVID and that people who might be doing wet lab research, their progress will be severely hindered, um, will sort of that research be looked at any differently in this um, application cycle? I think it's hard to know. I think that you're going to list that on your ARIS application, so people will list what research they're actively engaged in. And so I think as long as you have that research on there, I mean, I think that may be something that you could put as a line in your personal statement to explain or something that you would talk about during the interviews, so. Okay, fantastic. Um, the next question is basically with your personal statement, how many people do you want to sort of get input uh, on that? You know, if you have too many cooks in the kitchen, it might sort of dilute the message in the statement. And perhaps should you try and look outside of your institution to get a fresh perspective on an, how an outside reader might interpret your personal statement? So, I, I, you know, um, I, I've been involved with advising our students going into general surgery or cardiothoracic for about the last nine years um, at our institution. And so I, I don't think you need to go outside your institution per se. I mean, I, I think that you should have faculty and residents um, as well as even colleagues reading it. So, you know, I, I think from a personal statement standpoint, you want it to be readable. Um, you want it to be, um, uh, you don't want it to be too, I guess fancy would be the right word or too unique. So I think you have to make it somewhat simple, understand who your audience is. You're not writing a letter for pediatricians, you're writing a letter for cardiothoracic surgeons who tend to be more conservative, um, you know, and also more blunt. So having, I think, letters that address, why do you want to be a cardiothoracic surgeon what prepares you to be a cardiothoracic surgeon and maybe a cardiothoracic surgery resident. And I think giving a vision of where you think you're going to be in 15 to 20 years can help differentiate you and, and give us a little bit more of an idea in terms of where, what you envision your career is going to be like. Okay, fantastic. Uh, with that, let's move on to the uh, scheduled question for Dr. Reddy. And so, um, Really, this is sort of given the limited number of ISIC spots, applicants typically have to sort of uh, book or um, apply for general surgery or four plus three um, programs. And um, there is this concept where there might be a bias uh, from general surgery programs against those people applying.
find I6? And how would you recommend navigating this landscape applying to all three, you know, traditional pathway four plus three in the I6, especially institutions that have multiples on them? So this is a great question. And I mean, this has a, been a tough thing to deal with for the last seven or eight years. And so I think that um, almost everyone should be applying, dual applying uh, to both I6 as well as to the uh, general surgery pool. You know, there's over 1,100 categorical general surgery spots per year. There's 36, 37 um, integrated thoracic spots in the country. Um, for the last couple of years, there's been usually a three-to-one ratio, making it more competitive than dermatology. Um, and, and really the most competitive um, field in medicine, at least, you know, in my review over the last number of years. So I think you have to um, apply to both. Um, I, I think you have to have two personal statements and two um, applications. Um, I think you have to have an application that's, um, that is directed towards general surgery. Um, and that includes a personal statement that is revised. And, um, and I think you can still say, I want to be a cardiothoracic surgeon, but you also have to say, why do I want to be a general surgeon? And what do I want to get out of that training that is going to help me on my ultimate career path? Um, I think for many uh, people who are interested in cardiothoracic, um, a lot of people have research or sub-eyes in cardiac surgery. So, I mean, it's not something you can, you know, hide. Um, but I think you also have to talk about and, and really make a convincing argument about why you're interested in general surgery. Um, I, I'm, I've been very frustrated for the last, you know, eight or nine years that some people have seen on general surgery interviews, you know, the comment, well, we don't want to be a backup. And, you know, I don't know that, you know, general surgery is a backup for surgical oncology or colorectal surgery or, you know, I mean, everybody on this panel is a general surgeon uh, before doing cardiothoracic surgery. Um, and so with the um, exception of maybe Alex Brescia. So, um, you know, I, I think that um, I think that is a, the, been a little bit of the struggle that people have faced. And so I think that um, a lot of you, when you interview on your general surgery rotations, I mean, I'm sorry, on your general surgery interviews um, are going to have to do a little bit of education. And I think you're going to have to educate multiple people at the same institution about, you know, yes, I'm interested in cardiac surgery and yes, I'm applying. I think you have to be honest about that. It's a small enough world that I don't think you can um, kind of fib on that. But I think that you also have to spin it a little bit and, um, you know, maybe downplay, you know, how gung-ho you may be on cardiac surgery and, um, and talk about how general surgery is going to get you to your ultimate path. Um, and so, you know, with regards to 4-3 um, versus the traditional pathway, which is, you know, five years of general surgery and then reapplying, um, which is how I, I did it. And, um, you know, we um, still have a lot of, I think the majority of, I don't know if it's a majority anymore, it depends on how many four or three spots there are, but at least 50% of everyone who's graduating, you know, in the next couple of years are still going to graduate through the traditional, you know, five years of general surgery, even higher, according to Dr. Vaporsian. So um, we'll do the traditional five clinical years of general surgery and then reapply. So, you know, it's, it's the minority of um, graduates who are going through either the 4-3 program or the I-6 program. So, you know, general surgery is still a very viable path, and that's the way the majority of people probably on this call are going to get to be uh, a cardiothoracic surgeon. All right. Thank you very much for that question or answer, Dr. Reddy. Um, our last question is going to be for Dr. Lewis. And um, this is probably really one that a lot of applicants are concerned about, and it's really how does one go about acing a virtual interview, especially given that doing an online virtual interview is a bit more constrained than um, typical in-person with multiple uh, people and um, sort of everything that's entailed in that. All right, so that's a great question. I have a, a very, very, very quick uh, 
slide so that I will go. I'm going to screen share this really quickly. I think you guys can see it shortly. Can you see it now? Uh, yeah, we can see it. Uh, again, I'm Claudin Lewis. So a couple of things to, to ace your uh, virtual interview, I believe at least. Um, there's many different institutions that have been doing virtual interviews uh, forever. So we can learn a great deal from them. Um, Microsoft being one of them. They recommend using a high resolution uh, lit photo for anything that you're putting on online that can be accessed by the people who are interviewing you. You wanna dress professionally and as you do engage in these virtual interviews, in the pictures that you're taking, you want to have a solid color light background. You want to avoid uh, the selfie group photo shot. You don't want to have something that's left blank. Um, in regards to the technology in which that you are communicating, you want to try to own the fact that you want to be able to communicate without any hindrances. And that means that you should be on a network that has enough bandwidth. Where appropriate, you should be on a wired connection. These are those small, tiny details, but honestly, you have that dedicated time um, of the interviewer for the next 30, 40, 45 minutes or so, and losing that time, you may not have a chance to get across the information you want. You would hate to have glitches um, as you try to communicate this information. Have, up, have uh, the latest software and a high resolution camera as possible. When you're preparing for the call, you wanna have a clean, a clean and quiet venue light colored background if at all possible. You definitely want to test your connection, just your webcam, close any unnecessary program that may be uh, taking a bandwidth or can pop up and, and cause harm during your dedicated time. Uh, you want to have a fresh resume on file ready uh, to send over, uh, sticky notes of talking points beside your webcam so that you can stay on point. Practice answering questions, definitely, definitely important. Now what's different um, with the virtual interview versus uh, being with someone, you have to remember that your nonverbal cues are going to be seen. All they have is the, the screen size of, of you available um, for them. They can't see how you're sitting or they can't see how you came in and shook their hand, but they can see that for this virtual interview, you decided to dress the part, that you're speaking clearly with a positive tone that you're looking at the camera and engaging in eye contact. You're nodding to address that you understand. And you're not slouching, leaning backwards or having poor etiquette that can be seen in the small screen. Because unfortunately, uh, that's gonna be very, very noticeable uh, cues that you may be putting out that may say you're uncomfortable or other body languages that may or may not address what you'd like to put out. And it's very important that you still try to leave a lasting impression. I would say for the majority of, of, of people who are listening, when you're engaging in the virtual interview, you should treat it as though it is uh, the most important thing happening at the moment. You're dedicating its time and you're treating it almost as though the patient, the person is there. So you're gonna share with them a personalized thank you, uh, note, email and or letter if you feel obliged to do so. You'll thank them for their time. Um, you'll make sure that you communicate all the possible things that, that will address the fact that you are very much interested and you didn't just show up by pressing one button. You are actually very dedicated to the entire process. 
uh, some of the things that I was asked to cover is, you know, well, what are some of the questions that you should ask? Well, I think the questions you should ask are relevant questions, you know, uh, things that pertain to the institution that you are communicating with. Well, you know, what are the cost systems or um, what opportunities are there in regards to living and being there, showing them that you're invested uh, in being in the location. Other questions uh, that you can consider are questions that would help you personally distinguish uh, your rank. Um, as was described previously, the rank of the actual uh, interviewee is actually what takes precedent before the actual interviewer of the institution. So when you're forming your rank process, you want to say to yourself, well, what would discriminate or distinguish one institution from the other so that I can say I would rank them higher? And some of those answers should be that you can see yourself working there. And now it's time for you to figure out that question in a virtual setting. I think it's important to avoid inflammatory questions, uh, questions that may seem harmful or questions that um, may give the wrong impression. Um, talking about money, uh, sometimes too early, and that may be more so uh, more important um, after uh, medical school interviewing for integrated programs, but you just want to be careful that you're not putting out the wrong things in there. Very important, you'll get that information, but is this the right place to, to try to get that information? That's what you have to ask yourself. Be mindful of your virtual cues is very important, and very quickly on etiquette, don't fidget. Try to maintain a good posture. Try to prepare for the interview as best you could. Smile. Use eye contact. I would recommend wearing pants. I can't guarantee that you would have no reason to get up, but should you get up, um, it would be very inappropriate or unprofessional um, when you're not wearing pants or a dress and um, you're putting out the wrong thing out there. The last slide is about practice. You want to see how do you come across in this format? When you interview, do you come out a little bit rash? Do you seem rushed? Um, do you come off a little bit anxious? And practice would help you. Practice so that you can present as confident as you could. Practice so that you can come across as a very good listener. And you definitely want to practice so that the others understand that it is worth it. You thought about the reasons why you are here. That concludes uh, my take on what it takes to be a part of the virtual interview and trying to put your best foot forward. Well, thank you very much for that answer, Dr. Lewis. I think uh, we have some very, very great points that uh, a lot of people can really sort of take to heart and use. Um, I guess right now we have about 14 minutes left until the scheduled end of the session. Um, so I, we can see if there's any other questions or if there's any other uh, remarks or comments any of the panelists would like to make. So, Edgar, I, um, <clears throat> I actually, I, I do have a question. I think that um, in, uh, in a lot of the panelists' remarks, um, the idea of mentorship came up and, you know, how to identify a program, how to find a, a good fit, how to um, write your personal statement. You know, a, lo a lot of it came down to, you know, find a good mentor. And um, I think there was some good advice that that doesn't have to um, absolutely have to be a cardiothoracic surgeon. Um, obviously, uh, it is more ideal uh, if it is, but, you know, especially in this era of COVID when we're not having national meetings, you know, the uh, AATS member for a day, the SDS looking to the future, um, you know, those were all great opportunities for medical students to 
um, to, to be able to identify a mentor, um, especially if they didn't have um, someone at their own institution. Do any of our faculty panelists have any thoughts on uh, medical students in those positions um, identifying uh, mentors and, and uh, trying to find someone to, to help guide them through this process? I think an important thing to understand about that is that um, we're all in the same boat. So it's as difficult for us as programs to choose you as it is for you to choose us. And although, you know, I know um, our of a portion well, and I know how to read between the lines on, on his letters, uh, a well-written letter from a general surgeon that demonstrates number one, that they, that they know you, that they have worked with you, that they have a very high opinion of you, and that can, can relate a few personal things is, is really important. And, you know, many of the applicants we see every year are coming from medical schools that don't have thoracic residencies. And a significant number of them are coming from medical schools that don't even have a cardiac program or a general thoracic oncology program. And then you, you just need to explain in your personal statement and in your conversations, uh, emails and interviews, this is why I think I want to be a thoracic surgeon. Um, uh, when I was in the second grade, I saw a uh, movie about a thoracic surgeon I thought was really cool. And ever since then, I thought that's really trite. Don't say that. Just tell us, you know, what inspired you to think that you wanted to be a thoracic surgeon? And um, it doesn't have to be the mentor you have in medical school or the time you spent at, at an AATS summer research program. Um, you're, you're not alone. You're not the only one. Chime in on that as well. I mean, AJ's spot on. I mean, let's be honest. If you're a medical student applying to an integrated six-year program, I don't expect any of your letters to have some insightful information about how you rock at doing coronaries or how you can do a lobectomy already, right? That's not coming, all right? What I want is a deep knowledge of your commitment, of your grit, of your hard work, of your communication style, of your willingness and your professional demeanor. I want the stuff you learned in kindergarten that I can't train you to do, all right? Uh, because I can train you to be a cardiothoracic surgeon. That's what we do. But I can't train you to be professional, communicative, driven, gritty, those things. And so if I can get that information from a letter, even if they're a pulmonologist or a cardiologist, which, by the way, can make great mentors for you. Uh, and pretty much every institution has got cardiologists and pulmonologists, so you can find somebody or a surgical oncologist, et cetera. Um, that's what I want to know. I, I want to know, is this person, am I going to have to expend energy to train them to do the things they were supposed to learn when they were in kindergarten? Um, and remember, your personal statement is really, really important. I mean, I never get a letter about an applicant that says, this guy's a doofus, don't hire him. Nobody's going to, you're not going to ask that guy to write you a letter. Nobody's going to write a letter like that about you. But what I really want to know is who are you? And I'm going to look at your letters and I'm going to say, you know, these people all think that he walks on water and so do the other 100 applicants that, that applied. Um, but 
your personal statement, really put time and thought into that. Really do a little soul searching and assess what it means. Because I'll guarantee you, at the majority of your interviews, you're going to be asked, so why do you want to be a thoracic surgeon? Be ready to answer. And I just want to uh, to echo that. And, and I just think that that's really important, especially this year in the COVID era when you can't do external rotations. You have to, to, to make yourself individual, make yourself stand out. So think about that in your personal statement. How, how can I make myself stand out and how can I communicate why I want to be a cardiac surgeon, why I want to be a thoracic surgeon, why I, why I want to do this as a career? One thing in integrated programs that we're all very careful about, because we're small programs, um, we've got one or two residents in each year group, we really want to believe that the people we rank are people that are committed to going all the way through. Having a hole in mm -hmm. a small program, that's, that's a burden mm -hmm. on fellow residents, and it's, it's really tough. So, you know, a level of commitment is something we're all looking for. That's great advice. Um, so we have a couple of questions from the Q&A that we just wanted to touch. Um, I know, I think it seems like Dr. Reddy, you're answering a lot of them in the question and answer chat box, which is amazing. Um, do program directors for different departments at the same institution interact with each other regarding applicants? Um, if so, do you recommend applying to both I-6 and general surgery programs at the same institution? Yes. I, I think just one thing I'll say from an applicant perspective um, is that it depends on the institution and uh, and that's just sort of part of the research you have to do when you're applying you can ask colleagues you can ask TSRA members but um, there's a wide continuum of attitudes about this across institutions and and it's not the same um, you know, it's not going to be a secret that you're applying to both, of course. And so I think that knowing that landscape and the environment that you're applying to is really important when you're dual applying. I'll make a quick comment on that. I think it's important for the applicant to understand that the opportunities to match into integrated residency is already difficult because the numbers are what they are. Um, I think it's important to dual apply and not be the person that removes your own chances and your own opportunities from yourself, you know, let the person or program director be the one that has a problem with it, but I would dual apply um, and be completely honest and straightforward into what it is that you are pursuing. Um, general surgery is the track that you do prior to doing subspecialties and cardiothoracic surgery is a part of that track that you would do for general surgery. And it's the predominant method in which we train currently, you know? So there should be a, there, there shouldn't be, you know, this, this big divide, but if there is, it shouldn't be because you're removing your own choices, your own opportunities. Let them make that decision. And as you give them your personality and who you are, maybe you can win them over. Yeah, I, one thing that I would add to what you're saying, Claude, and what Dr. Reddy said earlier, I think that there are ways that you can strategize dual applying. For example, if you have letter writers who will write a slightly different version of the letter for general surgery versus 
cardiac programs, I think that makes a lot of sense. Because uh, if you're applying to an ICE or if you're applying to a general surgery program, you don't want a mentor's letter to say, I highly recommend them for your cardiac surgery program. It, it wouldn't make a lot of sense. And I think that there are definite strategies to use while you're dual applying. Uh, however, I, I don't think that it's, if you have to completely, you know, keep it a secret, I think that uh, number one, your application, you shouldn't be able to keep it a secret because it, it shows in your statement, it shows in your activities. And the second point is that I, I don't think that that is somewhere that you'd want to go if you have to be completely secretive about what you want to do with your career. There's also a couple of programs in this country where the same program director runs both. I just, go ahead, Rachel. Yeah, sorry, I was just going to add, um, I would really advocate that you get general surgeons to write your general surgery letters of recommendation. I mean, I think you can have one cardiac surgeon, but even then it's got to be a cardiac surgeon who is comfortable and who knows to write, you know, I'm supporting this student in their application for general surgery, because that is a mistake. What Alex just mentioned that we see um, still routinely to be quite honest, and, and it can kill someone's, rotation for certain general surgery programs, again, where they have that bias, which is not fair to the students, but there is that bias. Well, we don't want to be a backup. And so, oh, this person's applying for cardiac surgery. You know, we're not even going to give them an offer to an interview. And so, um, so I, I think you have to be very careful about that. And, and so, um, you know, obviously this year we're being flexible within, um, I think, cardiothoracic surgery about accepting more general surgery letters. But I think if you're applying for general surgery also, again, which I think all of you should be, I think you should have three or four letters written by general surgery mentors. I think that makes a complete sense. And thank you very much for the response, Dr. Reddy. Uh, I think if there's no other comments, we're just about out of time here for the uh, panel. So I, I think if we have no more comments, I, I think I speak on behalf of everyone all the attendees that this has been incredibly invaluable to sort of giving a sense of confidence going forward and a sense of direction in sort of this unprecedented time with this new interviewing uh, sort of paradigm that will hopefully be very brief and not much longer. I want to thank all of you for organizing this. This is wonderfully done and very timely and, and, and probably very valuable information to the attendees. Thank you for the opportunity to be a panelist. I, I really enjoyed this and hope I gave some uh, information to all of you out there. All right, thank you everyone.